All right. Well, it's good to see everybody. We're a little light this morning, but it is great to see all of you. Uh, it, uh, you know, the, the phrase, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, I was uh, visiting another uh, church service last week and, and made me long to be back uh, with all of you. And so uh, I missed you all. It was amazing. It was a large church and had some loud and beautiful music at, at times. But uh, it, it, uh, the singing was not there. Even with our, our low attendance this morning, you outsang over a thousand people. Um, let me just put it that way. There was almost no singing with about 1,500 people. And, uh, and so it just, uh, just reiterates how much of a joy it is for me to sit in the front and just listen to you sometimes when you're singing. I just, it, sometimes it, it just empowers me even more to get up here and preach, and I, and I love it. I love hearing your hearts sing to the Lord. And uh, so I, I missed you greatly last week. I had to sing because I couldn't hear anybody else singing, <laughs> and so, so I, I guess this rock had to sing. So I was crying out to the Lord, and he understood that I wasn't on key, but that was okay. So anyway, um, it, was great, um, it was great to catch the services online, and so I was with you in spirit, even though I wasn't here. It also did my body good. I, I was, it was a, a restful time sitting and not really doing anything and, and whatnot, but I guess it wasn't restful for my wife, so she's at home, and she got a fever yesterday, and so she's in bed, and, uh, and so she's resting, and so I got my rest last week, so uh, we're, I'm all hyper and energetic. We didn't have Sunday school this morning, so I figure I have 15 extra minutes this morning. <laughs> I got a few smiles and chuckles out of you. That was great. I'll try not to do that, uh, but uh, no, I, we are still not going to be in Romans. We'll go back to Romans in another week, and uh, we'll be in and out of Romans again, as well as Sunday school, plan on being in chapter 18. Um, those of you that have uh, been coming to Sunday school, we're, we're going to be finishing up Knowing God um, by J.I. Packer. If you want to join us, it's never too late. We're going to be talking about the gospel next week and knowing God and, um, and how his, uh, the doctrine, the teaching about God in Scripture helps us to understand him more fully. And so we'll be in chapter 18 next week in Sunday school downstairs around the tables so we can have some discussion and uh, we'll be integrating back into that uh, downstairs. And so looking forward uh, to that as well. Yes, we are embarking into a new year. It's hard to believe. It truly is. The older you get, the faster it goes. And uh, along with your memory, I think. And so, <laughs> but um, look forward to that. And this is the year that we, we hear a lot of statements made. We hear a lot of statements about New Year's, new beginnings, new things, new traditions, uh, or going back to old traditions. Um, but there's a lot of statements. Um, that's one of the things about New Year's resolutions, being resolute 
about things. We hear a lot of that um, in this, this day and age. It's, it's not just now. It's, it's been something that's been done for a lot of times. But it, there are always statements. And I want to kind of challenge you uh, to think differently as you enter into this new year. I, I, a lot of times we make statements about outward things. But I want you, instead of making statements, I want to challenge you to ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. You say, well, why, why is that? Why asking good questions? Good questions reveal the heart. And as you think about this year, and if you really want to change, you need to ask good questions. Because good questions will reveal the heart, and when it reveals the heart, it enables God to change the outside. We're so, we're so focused, the, the world is so focused on things on the outside, making statements, whether true or not true, about change. And they're going to do this, or they're going to do that, and how can we make change? But I want to challenge you. What questions need to be asked? And really, that's what James was talking about. By the time he gets to James chapter 3, this really is a hinge for James as he's very practical and he's very like, here is some good teaching. By the time he gets to James chapter 3, he says, here is the question you need to ask yourself. And then he goes on to the statements on how you better understand yourself in James chapter 4 and James chapter 5. How can you right the ship? If you ask the right question, you reveal your heart to God, how can you change? That's chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 3, you know that he's been talking about taming the tongue, but now he gets to verse 13 through 18. Would you, as we get to read this, would you pray with me and ask God to help you as we look at asking the right question to actually evaluate our hearts? I want, you to, I want that to be on your minds as a challenge. Will you evaluate your heart as we enter this new year? We want to be a church that is fruitful. We talked about that last year. It starts with evaluating our heart. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word, we ask that you would help us to see it clearly. That I would speak it clearly, concisely. Lord, that it would open up our, our thoughts and that we would let the, the ideas and the thoughts of our culture, our society, our world, those things that are earthly, that we would move past those outside things and help our minds to look back to the inward things, the realization of the gospel, the good news of what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that teaches us, encourages us, helps us is our guide, is our comforter, is our encourager. Lord, may you use your spirit to guide us this morning as we read our text and that you would teach us this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James chapter 3, this is our text. And looking at the tale of two wisdoms, it kind of took that on the, you know, the tale of two cities, great book to read. Um, you know, I basically, a lot of people may not know it, but I love to read, even though I have a hard time reading because I'm dyslexic, but I love reading. But here's the thing, the tale of two wisdoms, and that's really the theme of this section. It says this, and it starts with a challenging question, a challenging question that we overlook. Verse 13 of James 3. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealous and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of, un of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James starts off with a great question that is helpful for all of us as we look at this new year. Who is wise and who is understanding? The word understanding is actually a play on wisdom. Who is wise and who is understanding among you? That is a great question that all of us should ask. And many times when we're reading through James, we overlook things like this and we don't stop and ponder the truth of what God is trying to get across. There's the true reality here, as we see in the introduction, is this, is that there's this important and often underestimated question. Who is wise? And really, it's also the question of who is wise and what wisdom are you truly patterning your life after? As we look at this text, I've, I've chosen to focus on alliterating or, you know, putting every main thought after, you know, a P word. And that is the proof of the wisdom we follow. And then we're going to see the pattern of those two wisdoms. And we're going to see the byproduct or the product of those two wisdom. You can actually get to this actually through the words in the text, and you can get there by just asking the simple who, what, why, when, and where uh, good interrogative questions in this passage. This It's often overlooked. He's actually specifically wanting us to evaluate our life. Because a lot of times we focus on what we know about God, but we rarely ask, are we following the wisdom of God. And that's what James is getting across. Because wisdom is not simply knowledge, it's knowledge applied. It's how you apply the knowledge that you have. And sadly, a lot of times we know God is good, we know the Bible is good, and we spend time gaining knowledge about God, but we often fail to apply that knowledge. 
In fact, he talks about that in James 1. You're going to see in this, the end of chapter 3, if you go back and read chapter 1, chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, everything that's in this last section is in, those, in the rest of James. The word wise literally means the ability to apply knowledge to life. And the problem is, is that we have two types of knowledge. We have the worldly cultural wisdom, and we have the godly wisdom. And often we know things about God, but we apply cultural wisdom. It's so easy and destructive to God's wisdom. It's so easy to be tripped up by cultural wisdom, and we often gain knowledge of God, but we rarely apply that knowledge to our life. That's what James is really getting at. Which wisdom are you applying to your everyday life? I don't know about you, but as you think about that, and as I got into verse 13 and, and I looked at this, it gets as I was reading it in the Greek, it gets really convicting. Because this is a daily actionable question. When you wake up in the, in the morning or you, and as you're walking through the day and you say, well, am I applying a godly wisdom or an earthly-centered humanistic wisdom? How do I know if I'm applying those things? And that's where he's getting to. Because that's really what we want to know. Which wisdom is influencing your daily life decision? All of that is what James is trying to help us to see. He's given us very practical things in chapter 1. He's given us very practical things in chapter 2. He's given us very practical things in chapter 3. We need to understand that wisdom, it's how we apply our, our use of our tongue. Wisdom is how we apply the use of how we treat each other, chapter 2. Wisdom is how we deal with the trials in our life and how we deal with, you know, religion and how we actually treat one another in chapter 1 as well. What wisdom is influencing? And he's given us the distinction of two types of wisdom that we can follow, godly or earthly. And that's what we want to look at. Well, here's the proof to look at in your life of these two wisdoms and how they're acting. In verse 13, he goes on to say, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitterness and je jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The proof is really in the pudding, isn't it? Right? You know, when you, don't you hate it when you buy, like, a, I, I love pie, right? Have you ever bought a pie because it looks like a pie, and you cut into it, and you find out it's a different pie? I, I hate that. One time I bought a pie, I was all excited about this pie. It was supposed to be a really, from a really good baking company, not, not where my daughter works, but somewhere else. And I, was, I picked up the pie, went home, cut into it thinking it was, you know, the best pie in the world, apple pie, and it turned out to be peach pie. <laughs> ah, such a letdown. 
<laughs> so I didn't, I didn't eat it. I just like, here, I gave it to everybody else. The proof is in the pudding, right? That's, what, that's what, exactly what James is saying. The proof of the wisdom you follow is in your conduct. Your conduct will show you, James is telling us. Let him show. The word show there is, is the idea is that this, there's proof to the wisdom that's being applied in your life. Let the proof be shown. That's the idea. Real wisdom is shown, real wisdom is shown by good conduct and gentleness or good behavior. In the text here is this good conduct, good behavior. In other words, it's not intellectual prowess, not what you know, but it's by the behavior. It's rather the manner in which you choose to live your life. It's the conduct, you know, when it says good, it means excellent, noble, beautiful, the beautiful conduct of your life. The true demonstration of wisdom is in the deeds, right? You can't say I'm one thing and then go out and live another way, right? He's saying that. The proof of the wisdom that's influencing your life is shown in your deeds. And then he says, not only your good conduct, but in the meekness of wisdom. Or the truest sense is in the gentleness of wisdom. A lot of times when we see the word meekness, we think softness. But it's not really softness. It's the truest sense it was shown by the attitude and the conduct of Christ himself. It's in the Beatitudes when he talks about meekness. Meekness is, my professor always said, meekness is not weakness. It's actually power under control. It's actually control of your life. Being, having good, beautiful control. It's characterized, it's basically, it's the opposite of arrogant self-assertion. It's characterized by strength under control. You have strength to control your behavior. When it says the meekness of wisdom, that's what it's implying. It's demonstrated, really this word is often used when it demonstrates by patience and submissiveness to something else, even while wronged. This word for meekness or gentleness is used the majority of the time in context when you're wrong and you have strength to control your behavior. It's exactly when it says, therefore, in it's when it talks about, it says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's interesting is, is a lot of times we, we often we often revert back to cultural wisdom or earthly humanistic wisdom when wronged. But he's saying, look, the proof is in the pudding. If you're following a godly wisdom, it's going to be seen by good conduct and gentleness. But the opposite is true when we look at worldly wisdom. So the proof is in the two wisdoms here is by how we live. Because worldly wisdom is shown by divisive conduct. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and arrogance all has to do with self, and it all divides. 
Each one of the, these words literally means the dividing of yourself with someone else. It's to look at other people and divide how you feel about other people. Bitterness, bitter jealousy, it literally is talking about a bitter, hostile demonstration so you can get your own way. You act hostile, you act bitter, so that way you can get your own way. It's the act of manipulating. You get hostile, you, you get arrogant, you burst out in anger in order you, so you can get what you want. That's a worldly type wisdom. Or selfish ambition means it's a self-seeking attitude, which is goal is to gain advantage and prestige over other people. The idea of selfish ambition is to, to step on people, is another way to put it. So that way you have this selfish ambition to gain something over other people. It's an attitude that is from the heart. That's why this, this question is so important, because it's dealing with the heart. Real wisdom deals with the heart. Earthly wisdom affects the heart. When it talks about arrogant, the whole idea of so bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and that comes from the heart that is arrogant, the idea is it's personal glory over truth. It's personal glory over truth. That's why when it says here, it says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast, that's the word for arrogant, and be false to the truth. James is saying here that is when you have this divisive earthly wisdom, this worldly wisdom, this cultural wisdom that is developed by society, it basically your personal glory in your life trumps truth. What it means is, is that God's truth takes a back seat to earthly wisdom. When our life is characterized by earthly wisdom, we're going to struggle with truth. We're going to say, but, but, and we're going to doubt it. And we're going to ignore the truth. That's why this question is so important, because our life is going to be characterized by these one of these two wisdoms. James is saying that these people not only are self-absorbed, they boast about this fact, they have pronounced a sense of superiority towards those who do not see the way, things the way that they do. We see that in society today. You don't see it, if you don't see the same thing the way that everybody else sees it, then you are less than them. They are determined to submit to nothing other than their own desires. Therefore, they have no room for God. This is James' point here, which moves to the pattern of the two wisdoms. Now, we're going to, as we start, we ended with the, the, the proof of what a life looks like that's built on earthly wisdom or, or that. So we're going to start in the proof in verse 15 to the, the pattern that's earthly. So worldly wisdom has this pattern. It's basically 
human value. It's based on human value, the pattern. You know, when we say the word pattern, it means a specific characteristic. It means a form or a mold that it imitates. So when we say that the pattern of these two wisdoms, they're going to be two different patterns or two different molds that people are going to be pressed into or that they're going to follow. It's designed to be used as a model. And so the idea here is that the the worldly wisdom, the earthly wisdom, when it says here it's earthly, it's unspiritual, look in verse 15, this wisdom is not a wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. When it says earthly, the idea is that it values human thought. That's the idea. The product and, and is worldly values and goals. Everything is tied up in the value of human things. It's associated with it. The wisdom of the world, as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, a wisdom that is counter to God's wisdom. If we were to look at how can we better understand this passage, you just have to read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians. Or Philippians 3, 19. It says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. That's the earthly wisdom. Even Paul in Philippians 3 gives us the outcome. Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 12, it gives us the same thing. It says, you know, there's, there's a way that seems right in the man, but in the end it leads to destruction. Here's the other thing is, is that it's ungodly desire slash lust. It's sensual. It says unspiritual here, but it really means sensual. The Greek word is sensual. It's a wisdom that's produced by the flesh. That's what this word sensual means. It's unspiritual. It's counter-spiritual. It's a sense that it's a, it, it's, a, it's a fleshly desires that are mockers following their own ungodly lusts, devoid of the Holy Spirit. Those who embrace worldly wisdom do not always recognize that their wisdom is unspiritual. We see today being spiritual today is a popular thing. We need to be spiritual. Right? That's why we have yoga, and that's why we have all these other things that we got to tap into our inner self, and we got to focus on all these different things. we got to focus on self, and there's a lot of spiritualization in our words today. However, if you listen to those folks about being spiritual, you'll find that you discover that they have a God who has no power and no authority. It doesn't hold us accountable and has no rules. The only rule is enjoy yourself. Their God exists to make them feel better about themselves. That was the message we heard last week. I knew it was not a very good message because several of my kids said, I felt like we should walk out. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Me and my, 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 my brother-in-law were you know, talking about the message nonstop. We, you know, we were like, that Greek word doesn't mean that. And it's like, my brother-in-law, he studies Greek too. So 
But the thing is, is we were just amazed at how a feel-good message it was last week. We were shocked. Because we know who started, who really built that church up, and he was a great exegete of Scripture. But here's the thing. This is what happens. It values human thought or human value. It has ungodly desired lust, and it doesn't yield to God. This one took me a while. It says it's demonic, right, in our text? What does that mean? Demonic? Does that mean that they're possessed by, by evil spirits? Well, maybe not everybody's possessed by demonic spirits, but influenced, yeah, definitely. That's exactly what it says in, in Ephesians chapter 6, right? You know, it says, be, you know, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles and schemes of the evil one, right? The scheming, that's the idea here of demonic. It's a wisdom that follows after the pattern of the devil or the schemes. It's a wisdom that follows after the scheming devil. It's the idea that there is no change, no obedience, no yielding of self to God. Somebody who is earthly, who is, un, uh, you know, is unspiritual, who is sensual, who is, desires the lust of the flesh, that's built upon the flesh, because, is demonic. They don't submit their life to God. They follow themselves. That desol- the, the, this idea of following self over God and not submitting to God is a demonic thing. It's a pattern after the evil one. The evil one seduces us with notions of spirituality while moving us further from God to where we're no longer actually following God, but following our flesh. It's what 1 Timothy 4, Paul warned Timothy. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, strictly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Same word here where it says doctrines of demons as it says demonic in our text. Because of the character and source of such wisdom can do no good, it can only do harm, is the idea. This is the opposite, though. Look at God's wisdom. God's wisdom is, first and foremost, Right? Earthly wisdom is not from above. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 17, it says, every good gift comes from the Father of lights from above. Right? There's no change, shadow variation of change. It's the same today as it has always been. He doesn't change and shift every good thing. Right? And so the first thing we need to understand is that godly wisdom is from above. It, it, it has a completely different pattern. If it's from above, godly wisdom, it's saying that it, it comes from God. That means God is our pattern. It's revealed by God. It comes from God. That means that it's basically wisdom that is built upon God's sovereignty, his rule, rather than godless man. It's totally opposite. It's, it's, it's truth as revealed from God, by God, about God. Right? It's, it's about all about Him. 
It's this truth that comes from above, this wisdom that comes from above is it's a man as we see man as created in the image of God for an eternal purpose rather than as just another being in an evolutionary cycle. There's a purpose to God's wisdom. There's a reason for it. Right? And that's what he goes on to say here. It says, it says for, in verse 17, it says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. That word first means first in importance. It's, right? If it comes from God, then it's what? It's got to be pure. Because God is pure. What he's saying, James is saying, is it starts with purity, it starts with God, and then it flows from there. That's the whole idea. Everything else, so if you see in your notes, pure is separated from everything else. Because that's where godly wisdom starts with. It starts with purity. Right? It's, there is nothing jealous There's nothing, there's no selfish ambition. It's first pure. It has nothing to do with self. It has everything to do with God. Purity has to always be first in a godly wisdom. That's what sets godly wisdom apart from everything else. It's what makes it true and not subjective. It's an objective truth. Which leads to the next one. It says it's, it's peaceable. It's gentle. It's reasonable. You see that downward flow? Each one leads to the next. If we focus on the, this godly wisdom that's from above, it's always going to start with purity and then lead to being peaceable, then being gentle. And gentleness leads to being reasonable. And, and reasonableness leads to being full of mercy And being full of mercy leads to full of good fruit, which is unwavering and without hypocrisy. All these words are pretty amazing because it's peaceable. You know it's very easy to see if we're not following a godly wisdom, if we're not following the right pattern because it's peaceable. If we're struggling in our relationships with people, then we're not following in our life the pattern of godly wisdom. This is a heavenly wisdom. It literally means, in the Greek, peaceable means ready for peace. We're not just, we're ready for peace because we're going to follow godly wisdom, so we're opening ourselves up for peace instead of contention. It's desiring and fostering peace by restraining discord, and passicity, and pacifying the turbulent elements around it. It promotes right relationships over rights of self. This is the idea of peaceable. It's promoting right relationship that starts with God and then to others over the rights of self. Whenever rights of self take over, God gets pushed aside. Godly wisdom goes out the door, which leads to gentleness. Again, it's the same gentleness that we saw earlier. The idea here is is being able 
to patiently take it when treated wrong, unjustly. Being able to leave the matter in God's hands. I remember discipling a junior hire, and in the process of discipling a junior hire, I taught him how to build computers. And that started this whole process of doing land, you know, games in the basement of the church. And we would set up 16 computers and play games against each other. And uh, we even had competitions, like a two-day competition of who can beat each other, you know, over, you know, this two-day period. It was ridiculous the amount of time and effort into that. I, I can't believe I put that much effort into it. But I discipled him, and he now he's working for the State Department in Africa. And, um, and uh, work, you know, so if I ever have a problem with the State Department, I know who to call. And he's the, the main IT guy for the State Department. Um, but yet, he had his computer stolen. And he came to me, he's like, hey, pastor, I just want to, my computers got stolen. And his comment was, so we need to build more computers for the youth group. I'm like, what? And he goes, he says, and he goes, yeah, I, I stopped. I'm not praying, you know, to get my computers back or to find the person. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, we built those computers. We need those computers. He was donating those computers to people in the, in the school so that they could do their homework and then bringing them to church. He was leading people to Christ through those computers. I was, man, I was angry. And he said, well, pastor, I'm just praying because I know God will deal with them better than I could ever deal with them. And I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> I was like, I had to confess my attitude was wrong. It was not gentle. But yet he had a gentle spirit. And he had already moved on. Let's start building more. Whatever it took, yeah, by the time he was a senior in high school, he was already making more than me. I was just a youth pastor, so that didn't say much. (laughs) But here's the thing. It leads to somebody being reasonable. You know what the idea of being reasonable? You can show, be shown you're wrong. When you're wrong, you're wrong. You're going to be reasonable about it. Godly wisdom that is reasonable, does not push for its own rights or opinions, but is willing to listen and be shown if they're wrong. I never forget a a guy running into my office one day and uh, happened to be a deacon. I loved this deacon. He was so angry at me. And he said, you said this. And I said, yeah, but I could tell right off the bat he didn't understand what I said. But, and he, thought, he was so angry, and he started going, and I'm like, I am so sorry that I said that. It obviously hurt you. And he immediately changed, and he started crying. And I was like, I was like whoa. He goes, I thought you were going to defend yourself. And I'm like, well, I hurt you. I, it doesn't matter whether what I said was right or wrong. I still hurt your, hurt your feelings. And he just hugged me. And he goes, so why did you say that? And I said, well, this is what I said. And he goes, oh, that's not the way I took it. And I said, well, that's okay. And I said, we hugged. We're family. And we hugged each other. And, I, and we dealt with it. And it was great. But man, I tell you what, 
he's like, I had never heard a pastor say he was sorry before. Because <laughs> the last pastor was an ex-CHP officer who told everybody he, they were wrong. Yeah, he treated everybody like they were, you know, uh, needed to be locked up. <laughs> Partly because probably all of us need to be locked up. We're all sinners. But he treated everybody that way. And reasonableness and being willing to be wrong sometimes actually is a sign of godly wisdom. Now, I don't always do that. I just happened to do it right that time. I was led by the Spirit, and I listened to the Spirit, and I got it right. Not because I'm right, because I listened. How many times do we just, we know the right thing to do, and we don't listen to the Holy Spirit? We listen to earthly wisdom, which leads to being full of mercy, right? True, doesn't, true wisdom doesn't look down on one another, which leads to good fruit in unwavering or impartial. In our text, it says impartial. It means that true wisdom will, will bend when it needs to, but it will never bend to the truth. We can bend when we need to bend. Godly wisdom will allow us to bend when people's feelings are hurt or when, when things are not right. But when it comes to what God says and who God is, we're never going to waver in our faith about what God says. It's actually the same similar word that he uses earlier. Being undivided. You know, um, in, and it's talking about back in James 1, verse 5. Right? Sometimes we doubt about God. We ask, we say, God, I want wisdom. And then we doubt. And he says, don't suppose you'll receive anything from the Lord. We ask for God's wisdom all the time, but then we read it in Scripture, and then we say, I don't think I can do that. And we doubt. And then guess what? We don't receive any. We don't get the benefit of the wisdom. Rather, it holds unwaveringly to the truth of what God says, which leads to a life that's not filled with hypocrisy. That's, that's godly wisdom. Real quickly, we see that the products of these two wisdoms are completely opposite, right? It's easy to see the product of when we're following. The proof is in, always in the pudding. We reap what we sow. If we, we run after earthly wisdom, then the product of that will be very obvious. Worldly wisdom produces a life of confusion and worthlessness. It's a heart filled with jealousy and ambition will always produce so many problems. It says there will be disorder in every vile practice. Every vile practice. It's, it's amazing. The word disorder there, it, it's talking about this self-centered attitude or earthly wisdom of a person apart from God produces turmoil and confusion. Disorder means turmoil and confusion. We're going to be turbulent in our life. That's why we, you say, well, if my, my pastor, my life is just filled with turmoil and confusion. I just don't understand it. You're saying... Well, are you following the pattern of earthly wisdom or godly wisdom? 
It's great to evaluate. Where is your heart? For where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Man, why are we valuing? If you look at the earth right now, stable or disordered? <laughs> Peaceful or without peace? But yet, why do we seem to always want to pattern our life after what we see in this world? It's crazy, isn't it? And yet, our, this is the kind of life that we end up living. It's interesting, and in the Greek, it's literally every evil thing, the ESV and a few other translations, is saying that it'll, right, if we go back to verse 16, it says there will be disorder in every vile practice, every evil thing. The word evil or vile is not like we think of, like, devilish. It's, it's actually the word for worthless. He says, James is saying evil things, but he's saying it's worthless things. It's like the Ecclesiastes when, when Solomon said, these are just vanity. These are worthless. Everything that we can do on this earth is just worthless. It's vain. It's like grasping after the air. You know, have you ever played tag with the air and won? It's like, it just... Yeah, where is it? You know, like, are we hitting all the molecules there? Uh, you know, it's like crazy. It's like every evil thing. The word practice, thing means practice, by the way. In some of your translations, my every evil thing, ESV says practice. It's the word for pragmatism. It's the word where we eventually get programs. It's the word where we get pragma. It's Greek. I could build a whole message just on this phrase alone. It's saying that you pattern your life after, it produces this pattern where you're, you're following after this earthly pattern and you're putting all your emphasis on practices that are worthless. That's why sometimes we build life on programs and yet the programs do nothing. It's godly wisdom that does everything. The effect of this thinking is very predictable. Instead of bringing people together, it drives people apart. Instead of producing peace, it produces strife. Instead of producing a fellowship, it produces a disruption in personal relationships. It's, it's a sobering thing to remember that the wisdom that man possesses, that comes from man, is devilish rather than divine. This is, I ran into the quote from Barclay. I was reading his commentary on this, and he says, it's a sobering thing to remember that wisdom from man is devilish rather than divine, and such a man is engaged on par with the work of Satan rather than the work of God. When we pattern our life after an earthly wisdom, we're not doing God's work. It doesn't matter what you know about God. What is your life patterned after? Most of the societal ills and cultural ills that we experience today are a direct result of this faulty thinking. It's the consequence of worldly wisdom. 
but in verse 18, sandwiched at the, other, the end of this section, we see the, the product of godly wisdom. It produces a life of righteousness and peace. He says, and a harvest, the byproduct, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Godly wisdom produces a continual cycle of righteousness, not our good deeds, but God's good deeds that is produced in us, which is planted and harvested in a peaceful, harmonious relationship between God and his faithful people and between those, between all of us. It's amazing, Isaiah 32, 17, Isaiah declared the work of, of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. 2 Corinthians 9.10 will supply them the multiply your seed for sowing and increasing the harvest of your righteousness. When we follow God, he increased the harvest of his righteousness in our life. Not us. Earthly wisdom is self-fulfilling. We try to produce something ourselves, which always leads to more confusion and worthlessness. But godly wisdom, well, he will produce a beautiful fruit that results in his righteous deeds and a life of peace. Right? That's what Galatians chapter 6, God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. There's a story about two ships in the Black Sea. Not that long ago, depending on how old you are, I realized, I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, this was pretty recent. And then I'm thinking about it, it's like, well, it wasn't that recent. I realize I'm starting to get to that older threshold when I look at dates and say, they're not that long ago and realize they're almost, they were practically 50 years ago. It's like, whoa. Two ships collided in the Black Sea in 1986, hurling hundreds of passengers to their death. The majority died from both of the ships. What made the disaster even worse than the loss of life itself was when they found out what happened. It was two stubborn captains that knew that they were on a collision course that was requiring each other to move. They played chicken. They basically said, I am in the right, you have to move. Each of them telling that to the other. They were totally aware that they were going to collide, and they both refused to move. Rather than adverting the, and dealing with who is right or wrong later, they did not want to yield. Because they did not yield, it was too late, and the ships went down, causing the loss of the majority of the lives of the ships. That begs the question, which wisdom in life dominates your life? If, it, if we have a godly wisdom, we're going to realize some things. It, in order to really have a godly wisdom... To help you understand that, you need to understand that 
The world does not understand Jesus, nor will they ever understand Jesus. This earthly, worldly society will not understand Jesus. And if you try to help, if you're like, well, I'm going to follow the earthly pattern of living and wisdom in order for people to understand Jesus, guess what? They will never understand Jesus because they're following earthly wisdom. It isn't until the Holy Spirit comes into their life and they realize, oh, I need a Savior. The world doesn't understand Jesus. It can't. They don't accept Jesus as God, and they never will. As we begin to understand, one of the first steps to following godly wisdom is to stop worrying whether the world understands Jesus. Because they're not. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians, God blinds the wise of this earth with folly. And actually, he makes that which is folly confound the wise. My dad, my, not my current father, but my adoptive dad, he, he still doesn't get it. He calls me. He's like, how did you, you live on five acres? I'm like, yeah. He's like, how in the world did you buy a five-acre parcel of land? And it's like, well, first of all, the house is over 100 years old. <laughs> he goes, oh, okay. And I said... But here's the thing, he's like, you have a, a newer car. I'm like, yeah. Where, he's like, the last time I saw you, you had a van. Where'd you get that one? It's like, God provided. It's like, I, I, I said, I, my, my other father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? So when my daughter needed a, to, a wedding dress and flowers, and she was like, this is too expensive. I said, that's okay. We sold some animals, paid for the wedding, <laughs> Right? But our Father in heaven knows exactly what we need and when we need it. He doesn't get it. It still confounds him. He's like, I don't get it. This just doesn't make sense. He's like, you don't make anything. You're in a worthless job. It's like, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand Jesus. He thinks if he follows Jesus, he'll have to give up all his money. And yet he's lost his money multiple times. Millions of dollars. He's lost. He's had to sell a whole apartment building to cover all his debt because he's, he's crashed. His, his wealth has crashed. I think we're on the fourth time. Millions of dollars come and gone. I think we're on the fourth go-around. It's crazy. We need to realize the world will never understand us. If they don't understand Jesus, they're not going to understand us. Stop trying to make the world understand you. Our goal is not to have the world understand us. Our goal is to love the Lord. God will take care of their understanding. It's not something you can win an argument about because it begins in their heart. The other way to follow a godly wisdom is to be a student of God's word. Right? By the way, you know the secret... In James 1, when it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kind, we, we read that verse and we don't like it. That's James, by the way. Don't, you know, it's convicting all over the place. We don't like trials. We don't like hardships. We don't like things that we have to face that are hard. But he said we should count it joy because we get to see God work. 
The bigger the problem, I always said, the greater the joy. Small problems means I can fix it. Big problems mean I can't fix it. It means I have to rely on God. I, I learned that the hard way this last, this Christmas, when I went to Christmas and, and left two pregnant sows that were supposed to be due this week that had the babies while I was gone. And I had to trust the Lord in that. Knew that the Lord had, I had to say, Lord, you are sovereign. I was a stress mess. <laughs> and I said, I'm just not going to ask any more questions. I'll just deal with whatever I come back to. That was hard. Even pastors have to continue to learn. But here's the thing. Verse 5 is the answer. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But here's the rub, right? If you ask God, he will give it to you generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. That's trusting with, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the person who, has not, who must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That same product, by the way, of confusion, instability. We need to be a student of the word and trust it. That's what he's saying. We need to trust it. Many times we read God's word and we don't trust it. We do what we want to do regardless of what God says. I don't, I'm not going to trust. It's too hard. I can't tell you how many meetings in my life as a pastor that I've been in with on boards, on Christian boards, that are overseeing Christian ministries, and I say, has not God said, and I read the verse... This is what we should do in this situation. I said, yeah, but that might hurt so-and-so, and that might this, or this might this, and this. I, I, I just think that we should just, we're just not going to do anything. But didn't God say to do this? And every time that they said, no, we're not going to do it, it's led to discord. It's led to major problems. But every time I've seen... People say, yeah, you know what? This is going to be a tough one. I don't like it. I really don't like it. My heart hurts. It's going to be hard, but we're going to follow what God says. Every time we've done that, it's usually ended extremely well, way beyond what we could have ever expected. It's crazy what the Spirit does to those that we're worried about. When we worry and we have earthly wisdom, we tend to worry about the wrong things. When we have godly wisdom, the Spirit goes ahead of us and takes care of the problem before we even realize it. It's pretty amazing. We need to be a student of God's Word so that way we can defend ourselves from worldly thinking. By the way, being a student of God's word is so we can be a doer of God's word. A student doesn't mean just knowing. It means doing. We must evaluate all the things in our life by the objective standard of God's truth. We need to hide, use God's word to hide ourselves with Christ. Right? Colossians 3, seek ye first 
These things, if you're raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Just like Jesus said in the Beatitudes, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added to you. We want all the other things first before we seek the God first. No, seek God first, and then the things will be added. If we are a student of God's word, we'll be able to defend ourselves from worldly thinking. And the truth of this is we must live wisely. Live wisely. What I mean by that is our job, our God's desire is to translate our knowledge of him into action. Are you doing that this morning? As you look at this new year, we look at what James is asking, who is wise and who is understanding among you? What does that look like? Well, he just, he just hit us with a sledgehammer. I don't know about you. For two weeks, I've been pouring over this. I was like, what am I going to say on the last day of the year? Don't make statements. Ask questions like this. What wisdom am I truly following? What wisdom is dominating my life? Is it a patterning after godly wisdom or is it a pattern after worldly wisdom? Is my life turning out more like earthly wisdom or is it turning out more like godly wisdom? Where is your life? Earthly wisdom will look just... The earthly wisdom, by the way, we're not going to change it. It's going to look exactly the way it is looks right now. That chaos that you see is the chaos that you'll get. But godly wisdom is from above. And the promises that come with it are from above. It's pure. No ulterior motives, just his righteousness and peace. Right? Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all men. That's the same reasonableness in our text. Let your reasonableness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about every, anything. That's instability, by the way, confusion, instability. Don't be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then, it's an if and then statement. Then, if you do those things, you make those decisions, then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, good report, uh, there's like eight different things that I always jumble up, right? Anything praiseworthy? He said, think about these things. Set your mind on these things, he says. And then he says, now all the things that you've heard and seen in me in my life, He's talking to the church in Philippi. He said, all these things that you've seen and heard in me, practice them, do them, and then the God of peace will be with you. He's telling them to follow 
pattern of godly wisdom. The result is a life of peace. If you lack that, ask this underrated question and let it sink to your heart and look and evaluate the patterns in your life and just come to the Lord and be honest. Start following his patterns, his truth. Trust it. Go to him and say, Lord, I need your wisdom. Ask, and it will be given to you. But don't ask for yourself. Submit to the Lord and let him use it in your life. So many times we ask for wisdom, but we only want wisdom if it benefits us. It's earthly, selfish, ambition, arrogant. But ask, expecting to receive the wisdom of God, not to suppress our emotions or feelings, but to trust him. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Lord, I thank you so much for this new year that's coming. I thank you for this message. It's a, it's a hard message to hear, but it is beautiful what you do with your wisdom. It's a message we desperately need. If we are going to be a fruitful church, a church that disciples, encourages, lifts up one another, doesn't allow one another to continue to walk in a pattern of earthly wisdom, but to follow you, to desire you, to know you more, to see people get saved and to be baptized into into your life, to submit to you. And we need to be a church that is patterning our lives after your wisdom. So Lord, as we study your word, may we not just be hearers of the word, but be doers, patterning our life after you, after your character. May we study you, know you, and therefore live by you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your truth and how it can help us to navigate the evil things and patterns of this world. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.